Welcome to the Faith and Culture Now podcast. I'm Scott Schiffer, and today I'm glad to be joined by Aaron Newton. Aaron, good to have you back. Yeah, good to be here again. So today we're going to begin by talking about uh, something that I just sort of uh, saw in the new re- news recently and thought was pretty interesting, and it deals with the uh, this Galapagos tortoise that they thought was extinct, and as it turns out, it's not extinct. And the reason this article caught my attention is primarily because over the last couple of years, there's about 11 different species I've seen articles on where they thought it was extinct, and then lo and behold, here it is, and we didn't think it existed anymore, and it still does. And this uh, made me sort of recall in my mind a number of years ago, um, uh, reading about when they rediscovered the okapi in Africa. Uh, They thought it had been extinct for about 75 years, and there was a group of uh, explorers or scientists or something that had gone into this area where some tribes were still living, and they were showing them pictures of different animals, and some of the tribesmen said, oh yeah, we know what that is, and they said, you can't know what that is, it's extinct. They said, no, hold on, they went into the jungle, and they came back about an hour later with one, and now we have a number of zoos around the world that have this animal, and they've been trying to sort of get the population of it back up. And so I don't know what all they're going to do with this tortoise in the Galapagos, but it really, uh, these kind of stories always encourage me because I think they're, first of all, interesting because we think we know more about the world than we really do. And we think we understand even creation more than we understand creation. And so uh, it's interesting because we think we've got the world figured out and then lo and behold, we don't. (laughs) There's things we think are extinct and they're not extinct. And uh, it, it also though, reminds me of just the the need to care for God's creation and be good stewards of this world. So what are some of your thoughts on, um, you know, this particular story? Uh, I loved this article. Much like you said, I am so encouraged when you start getting stories of species, um, whether they're like plant life or animals that have been discovered either like brand new ones. Um, and I think we're always so fascinated, like how could we possibly have found something new? Cause I think we fall into the error of thinking we've known all things. And so like we've arrived. Um, and this is just another great example of having like that consistent wonder of what God has done and, and that, uh, we're still not, uh, all knowing as we like to pretend like we are, And with like creature care, this has been something that has been more on my heart over the last few years. And really by reading other theologians um, with my early Christian, you know, like learning, uh, my eschatology was very much like we are in the end times. So it doesn't really matter what you do with the earth because it's all going to be burned up anyways. And so I didn't care because I didn't think that there was a necessary need. Um, but again, as, as I've read more and, and despite what you really believe about, if it's the end times or we still have billions of years, um, what I do see is that we're still called to care for God's creation. Um, and that was part of the Genesis commands and, um, we don't do it very well. Um, And I think it gives me a lot of hope, especially in my own research. So much of my thesis research revolves around Leviathan. 
And so it's fun to read that because a lot of people will say, we don't have any creature like this. So it's probably just a poetic example of a crocodile or, or, you know, whatever they want to equate it with. But when we see these creatures being discovered, you're still like, well, maybe we just haven't found it yet or found its remains. And, and always kind of, it's like half of a joke um, because I think there's a mythic background to that. Um, and I, I think it's a little bit of caution when we find new species and we're hoping to make them more populated um, because I think typically the reason why they're numbers have gone, you know, have, have gotten them to the level of extinction or threatened extinction is because of what we do with the land and with their habitats. And so it's kind of one of these, you know, I, I think I talked about Jurassic Park last time, but there's, you know, that conversation of, you know, I think in the newer Jurassic worlds, they talk about like, well, it's a problem to bring back some of these animals if we don't create you know, if they don't have a habitat that's really sufficient for them. Um, And I I do want the, you know, these species to be protected, um, but it it will take more than just creating more tortoises. You know, we need to make sure that they have a place to thrive and live, which probably means we need to stop meddling in their habitats. Mm -hmm. But that, you know, it's, it's a very difficult, you know, divide because we want to cultivate the land and get what we want out of it, but kind of at the expense of some creatures. Um, but I, it's yeah. kind of like, it's very hopeful and encouraging, but at the same time, like, but if we don't do our part and show restraint on our end, it, it, I don't know if it'll be beneficial in the end. Yeah, I think caution's a good term um, because you know we, we oftentimes think, oh, we're gonna help this species out. And then you sort of help the species out, but not in the way that's really best for the species. And uh, people do this with one another as well. You know, hey, I want to help you and I'm going to help you like this. Well, that's great, but that's not the kind of help that person needs. And so you end up either enabling or stifling the person because you're trying to help them in a way that doesn't really meet the needs that they have. And so with, uh, with a lot of creation care, uh, it comes back to habitat. You know, when we're overfishing, it doesn't matter if we... Uh, you know, try to reintroduce more species of this fish if we're still overfishing. And so uh, we've got to really consider, you know, how are we caring for the world? How are we making the world sustainable in such a way that um, everyone can flourish? And, you know, humans can flourish, plants can flourish, animals can flourish, fish can flourish, birds can flourish, and so on and so on and so on. So um, it's it's, it's always good to be cautious with regard to uh, what we do to help creation, but we also want to be good stewards of creation. You mentioned the whole eschatology thing, and, uh, uh, you know, unfortunately, there's a lot of Christians who think, you know, yeah, God's coming back, and this place is going to burn, so who cares what happens to it, and they forget that this is our home, and God created us for this earth, and that he created us here as his caretakers of his planet. And so we really do, as Christians, need to, to, to think through what should our relationship be with these creatures and how can we help support them in a way that's good for them uh, and, and is also good for everything around them. So um, even with animals, if you overpopulate a certain species, you know, I mean, we see this in deer havens all the time, 
um, you know, where there, there's no hunters, so there's no one allowed to kill the deer, then they overpopulate, and then you, you drive through a place that's a haven area, and all the deer are underfed because there's too many deer for the amount of food that's available. Uh, but then you go into an area where hunting is allowed, and you see a deer, and it looks really good and healthy. Why? Well, because there's not too many of them. But you can't overhunt them, and you can't overpopulate them. And so there's a big balance, and that balance um, really takes a lot of work. So speaking of um, sort of just, you know, having caution, um, there's an article that came out recently about an inmate on death row who requested an alternative method of lethal punishment. And so, um, Aaron, I'll go ahead and let you kind of introduce that a little bit more, but obviously we need to exercise caution in how we even deal with the uh, end of life of people on death row. Yes, uh, this was an article that I think when I saw it, I think my eyes just became saucers and I was like, is this really, really mm -hmm. a discussion? Because apparently his medical condition makes it so that lethal injection would be borderline torture. I think he um, suffers from seizures or something of that nature. And mm -hmm. so the request, I think it was in Georgia. I should probably double check, but he was asking for a firing squad instead. And it just felt so bizarre when I read that, because um, I think as we, we look, you know, as some look at um, the death penalty, it seems like, oh, well, lethal in injection is the merciful way. Um, and so to feel like, okay, well, the merciful way is now something that we would say that feels barbaric. Um, and apparently from this article, then it was talking about inmates requesting alternative methods. It's actually not new. It was new to me. Um, and as a believer, it started to ask this question, like, you know, what is this idea of mercy with capital punishment? Um, and then how do we, how does like the death penalty compare to like, you know, a life sentence might be another alternative merciful way of, um, you know, fulfilling what we would say is the justice of it. Um, and so um, what got to be really interesting is I had this conversation with my husband who is in law enforcement. And so we come at this completely differently. And, um, you know, and, and again, I, I'm coming from an Old Testament background too. So um, that whole concept of capital punishment is not foreign to us. And so I really wanted to hear what you had to say um, regarding this concept. Well, I think, uh, the, I think the first thing I'd like to say is just, um, you know, people have been arguing about whether or not the death penalty or capital punishment is even something Christians should support for a very long time. And you cannot make a case biblically that the government does not have the right to put people to death. Um, it's definitely given as an option in scripture for governments to make this choice. What's not given in scripture is for individual people <laughs> do have the ability to sort of determine whether or not someone deserves to die, right? So uh, if someone with the government authority says, yes, this is what we're going to do to this person, biblically they have a leg to stand on. Um, but just because something is allowable in scripture doesn't mean that it's always the best thing. And um, so for, I don't know, probably the last 15 to, I don't know, 15 to 18 years now, I have opposed capital punishment. 
And um, I've opposed it for a number of reasons, but the biggest reason that I've opposed it is because studies have shown, at least up through about 2010, that nearly one third of the people put to death are later exonerated. And to me, that's just, you know, putting one person to death who's actually innocent is too many, uh, but, but putting to death, you know, nearly 30% of the people put to death, you know, and then later out finding out that they didn't do it uh, is just um, completely unacceptable. And so uh, there's, there's a lot of humanity or humanitarianism lacking in, in that kind of uh, system. And so I don't, I don't agree with the capital punishment. And I think that um, if we as Christians truly value life, that, um, and, and you know, a big thing in Christianity especially is valuing the life of the unborn child, and uh, which I think we should do. But um, if we are going to say, you know, life matters at the beginning, then I have a hard time turning around and then saying, but it doesn't matter as much at the end as, you know, if you're this kind of a sinner. And, you know, everybody is a sinner. And we, uh, in, in, you know, in Christianity, we believe that because we are sinners, we are separated from God's goodness and love and all the things that come with being in his kingdom, and which is why we need Christ. Uh, but we also believe as Christians that anyone can come to faith in Christ. And so uh, for me, uh, looking at a story like this is interesting because the government clearly has a leg to stand on when they say this is what we've chosen to do here. But as a Christian, I would say, you know, if, if there's a way around capital punishment, we should look for that. And so life in prison without parole is a better option, uh, perhaps for this guy. Um, but I don't think that it's a good idea to necessarily trade one kind of cruel punishment for another, you know. And um, it seems very, very much like it was way back in the past, but firing squads haven't not been around for that. I mean, they were still using them as far as I know, maybe not as much here in America, but in some places, uh, at least in the 1980s, um, that are considered like, you know, modern countries, right? Uh, in some places in the world, they're still hanging prisoners. And so, in fact, in some places, I think they're still beheading prisoners. And, you know, so we sort of have this idea here in America that some of these forms of punishment are just unacceptable. And we have taken this position because we feel like the person is needlessly suffering more than they should. So we want to end someone's life, but we want to do so in as much of a humanitarian way as we can. And, um, my argument would be, let's just not, let's just not do it. Let's just put people away and, uh, you know, let God sort of, uh, you know, in his own time, take their life from them. Uh, but even with that being the case, uh, whenever you have an issue like this, where there's a medical reason why someone shouldn't be injected, uh, you have to really stop and think, well, then what would be the, the most humane way to do this? And, um, when we talk about humane killing, we want something to be as painless as possible, and we want something to be as quick as possible. And so uh, that's one of the reasons why the lethal injection has been so well accepted is because um, it sort of is kind of like you go to sleep and you never wake up. Um, it's also incredibly, incredibly expensive. And um, if I understand correctly, many people can live out their entire life in prison for less than it costs to put them to death through lethal punishment. 
um, which is sort of a, a taxpayer issue. Um, and um, the other thing that I, I think is kind of interesting here is um, with the firing squad idea. You know, the reason that people like the idea of a firing squad is because people don't want on their own conscience that they killed someone. And so what you do is you have, you know, 12 or 15 people with rifles and only one person uh, has an actual bullet in the gun. The other people have blanks in their guns. Everybody fires and you don't really know if it came out of your gun or not. And so it's hopefully easier on that person's conscience if, uh, you know, to not know for sure that it was them <laughs> that, that uh, took the other person's life. But this is a really tricky issue. And, um, you know, even, even if, you know, there's a chance that your gun had a blank in it, well, you know, it, it's still going to have a, a significant emotional effect on you. And even seeing a person die like that's going to have a traumatic effect on you. And so I don't think it's an issue just for the person on death row. It's also an issue for the people being asked to pull the trigger. And anyone in law enforcement will tell you that, you know, it weighs very heavy on their heart before they pull a trigger, um, you know, because they're going to have to live with that decision for the rest of their life. And depending on how the news wants to spend that decision they made, uh, they may li be living with that decision very publicly uh, for a good while. So and I appreciate that. I, um, I feel like I align pretty closely with everything you said. Um, a part of the conversation I had when I was talking about this with my husband and just with friends and we kind of all have different um, views on on this, but I jokingly said, you know, if I had been raised in like an Amish community, I could, it wouldn't take much for me to just go full pacifist, you know, um, I, and I think it really is rooted in this concept of honoring life and having a very high value of life, um, Especially, you know, you can't read Leviticus without understanding this, this weightiness of, you know, there's life in the blood and, you know, the constant reiteration of uh, the sanctity of life. And I do think that some arguments I've heard about for capital punishment is, is kind of just saying since the Old Testament allows it, then it's okay which is really just like cherry picking the Old Testament. Um, right. You know, there's definitely laws that are really great. Um, and I think we even implement some of them today and we benefit greatly from them. But again, like you said, just because it is allowed doesn't typically mean it's like the best decision. Um, right. In scripture, long... God frequently allows things because mm -hmm. the people sin, because the people's hardness of their hearts. You know, I, and you look at divorce in scripture, and, you know, it says that God allowed <clears throat> Moses to allow the people to give a certificate of divorce because he knew that people were going to have things they weren't going to be able to work out. And it's not that God likes divorce. I mean, other scriptures say that God hates divorce, right? But he allows it. He allows it because of our sinful nature, not because it's the best thing for us. Right, right. Um, Trimper Longman has a book called Confronting Old Testament Controversies. And it's actually really good because, and he looks at four major things and one in which um, is violence. And, you know, because it's hard to be an Old Testament scholar watching God, you know, permit the conquest of the land 
and then come at, back and say, well, I also don't, um, I don't particularly support capital punishment either, um, which feels like a, a controversy, you know, um, but in, and he, as he explains it, he's just walking through the old Testament and then getting to the new Testament. He's like, we're in this, like a new phase of how God is, is working with us. And, and, you know, the focus is now on the spiritual warfare. We've moved from um, the conquest of the land to now God's working with us, you know, in a spiritual realm and not to say that he wasn't even before then, but uh, mm. I think that's where this idea of, you know, cutting somebody's life short, though it may be just according to our laws. Um, I think it does, you know, bring that whole concept of, you know, would it be more merciful to let them live, especially if they have not come to know Christ, you know, we're cutting off their life. Again, this is probably getting into how you view, you know, Calvinian, you know, Calvinism or Arminianism um, or somewhere in between, you know, Mm -hmm. should we cut a life short before they've had an option to um to have eternal life but like we said i think there's still always a place for mercy even if this is our law i think in the article it did say that they overthrew his case so at this point the lethal injection still stands mm-hmm. um which does make me sad i mean and it's weird to feel sad for a death row um inmate um i'm not entirely sure what um what his case was, but it, it does say like, I don't think um, torture or doing something that could be torturous is the best decision. Mm-hmm. And then the psychological damage on those who will have to be a firing squad um, is definitely a real issue at stake. I actually have no good solution to this article. I just thought it was fascinating um, and really kind of makes you have to wrestle with a lot of these complicated yeah. issues. I think a number of people will also say that they support the death penalty because if someone, typically in cases where there's murder, right? So someone took a life, so they forfeit a life, and us taking their life shows our value of the life of the other person. And, um, you know, I, I get the argument, and I think it's a, it's a pretty good philosophical argument. Uh, but my concern, again, then comes back to, well, you're getting back into the whole eye for an eye thing. You did this, so you get this. And, you know, the whole point of the Sermon on the Mount is there's a vicious cycle involved with the law. And as you continue going around and around in that cycle, you've got to at some point break it. And the way to break it, in, in the case of capital punishment, seems to be to say, look, you took a life. That's unacceptable. You're going to forfeit your freedoms. But because we value life, we're not taking yours. And so that's that's sort of where I come down on this. Now, with that being said, uh, you know, I know a number of police officers. I think I have about 16 friends that are police officers at different uh, places throughout Texas. And, um, you know, they'll come to me and say, well, hey, you know, I know you don't agree with this, but what about, you know, in the field, if someone pulls a gun on a cop, what do we do? You know, and it's like, well, you know, you're you're put in your position and we value your life as well. And if someone is willing to put yours in danger and you have to uh, retaliate to that, you know, with uh, in, in, in police training, they tell you whatever the person's doing, you do one step beyond that in order to put the threat, uh, you know, to, to quell the threat. Right. 
And so if uh, you know, a person is going to come at you with a knife and you pull your taser or your gun, um, you know, they, they came at you. And uh, you know, as an officer of the peace and you know, as, a, as a keeper of the peace, you've got to not only protect yourself, but you're also typically protecting other people in that general area. And so um, I think when, uh, when people do certain things, uh, it causes them to forfeit their life. Uh, and that's unfortunate, but it's also a, a repercussion of the decision they've made as it relates to the situation at hand. But anytime an officer can bring someone in and they can stand trial, that's the preferred method, not just um, for me, but that's the preferred method for the justice system. <laughs> that's what we try to do is arrest people, put people in court, they're innocent until proven guilty, even though our news media oftentimes portrays people as guilty until proven innocent. Uh, but that's a whole nother issue. Uh, and, um, you know, uh, put people on trial and then, you know, you let a jury decide, you know, okay, did, did this person actually do this or not? And if they did it, they should be punished, but they should be punished in accordance with what they've done. And um, the government has the right to take their life if they choose to do so. Uh, but I think it's also interesting that in states that the death penalty is not on the table, there tends to be less crime and uh, or especially less violent crime. In fact, states that have a death penalty tend to have a rise in um, capital murders and you know, like things of that nature, capital crimes. And so uh, what we do um, affects how the population behaves. Uh, you know, what, what rules we have, what governance we have affects how the population behaves. And I think that if the government says, look, we really value life to the point where we don't want to put people to death, then I think people in that area tend to say, well, we should value life as well. And so my, uh, uh, I guess my closing argument on this is that, you know, as Christians, we stand for life and uh, we value life. We care about life. Life is intrinsically valuable and all people are valuable because all people are created in the image of God. It's wrong anytime someone takes another person's life, and there should be consequences for that, but the consequences should always be humane. And so with that being said, uh, we'll come to our third topic now, and uh, I think there's a lot of humane issues associated with this as well, and a lot of caution associated with this as well is the issue of June being Pride Month. And uh, many businesses right now are expressing inclusion for LGBTQ plus community uh, through outward displays of pride colors and other things of that nature. I read an article the other day that Kellogg's cereal is having a pride cereal this month. I haven't seen it on the shelf in any of the stores I've been at, but apparently it's there. Um, you know, you're also seeing uh, uh, different businesses just trying to celebrate that kind of stuff. Um, I was talking to one of my relatives the other day and their boss put out a big email to the company uh, about just you know it being Pride Month and, and all this. And uh, so there's a lot going on there, uh, but you also saw an article, I think, uh, that uh, dealt with sports teams, even modifying their jerseys and whatnot for it. So do you wanna talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I actually was alerted to the article. I, I'm not a sports person, but off Twitter and, and somebody had linked that um, the San Francisco Giants were going to put a patch. Um, I believe that the it's gone beyond the rainbow and now they add a few more colors uh, for transgender and um, you know people of color, I believe is 
what the the um, additional colors are for. Mm-hmm. And um, and so the, the the person was asking, I wonder what it will be like for um, really not just Christians. It was even extended into uh, Muslims and and Jews who may not um, affirm the LGBTQ um, mm-hmm. you know, community. And, you know, what would it be like, you know, are they going to have fines? Are they going to be released, you know, from these teams? And it's really an interesting idea because the article is presenting it like, oh, well, it's just a patch. And Mm -hmm. I think this is where a lot of Christians start to struggle to say, um, you know, if they don't believe that the Bible affirms um, LGBTQ plus, if they don't, if they don't see that as an affirmation, um, but they still want to support and oppose hatred and, and violence against um, that community, you know, is it okay to go ahead and have the patch, but not affirm it? And, you know, it, I think that question of like, do we have space for a middle ground? What all is implied when we are embracing or, you know, accepting just the symbols of the community? And it's, or, you know, anything tied with Pride Month right now uh, might be more than just, um, you know, just the, the flags and the symbols of that sort. I think, yeah. And, you know, so there's, there's a lot of question that comes along with, you know, even with all these different companies and stores and things like that so celebrating this or, you know, streaming services or social media platforms, you know, all this stuff. Um, you know, then the Christian goes, well, should I even shop there anymore? And it's like, well, I mean, the company itself isn't a Christian company. And inevitably, companies are going to support things that you don't agree with. And if we only supported people that we agreed 100% with, we'd find ourselves on a desert island by ourselves pretty quickly. You know, uh, I mean, I'm a theologian, and I read other works by theologians all the time. Uh, and I found that there's not a single other theologian out there that I agree with about everything. I agree with almost every theologian about some things, but there's none that I agree with 100% of the time. And um, in fact, uh, you know, I'm not even sure I agree with myself 100% of the time as a theologian. So uh, that's just sort of how things go. Um, but it sort of reminds me of you know, a number of years ago, there was a baker who didn't want to bake a cake for, um, for a same-sex wedding, and he said he didn't feel like he could do it based on religious reasons, and uh, there was a big, you know, stink about it in the, in the news and the courts and all that, um, and then you also have had different people, like, who have been elected to justice of the peace that would say, well, I'm not going to um, sign the documents for same-sex marriages, well, the thing is, is, if you're in that elected position, it doesn't matter what you agree with. You're in the elected position that says you're going to do this. So you've got to sign it. And I don't think that signing it can, uh, you know, requires you to be uh, affirming or not affirming either way. It's just simply saying, as part of my job, I'm signing this for you. You know, and as Christians, uh, you're, you're right in saying that um, we don't want hate or other things, you know, towards these people who are part of the LGBTQ plus community because they're created in God's image. And not only are they created in God's image, they're, you know, they're obviously they're intrinsically valuable. And I said a minute ago, we stand for life and suicide rates, bullying, you know, 
all this kind of stuff is so elevated in the LGBTQ plus community uh, to the point where something is clearly wrong in our society. And so, you know, anytime someone spews hate to another person because of their choices, uh, good or bad, um, you know, that's inappropriate. And as Christians, we definitely don't affirm the bullying. We don't affirm the, you know, uh, depre- you know, things that cause additional depression. We don't affirm, tra- you know, traumatizing people. We don't affirm um, ostracizing people, uh, you know, but as Christians, we also uh, believe that, uh, according to scripture, that homosexuality isn't just a social issue, but it's a moral issue. And so I've had a number of people say to me, hey, can, you know, can a person who is gay be a Christian? Can a person who's transgender be a Christian? And I don't think that's really what they mean. Uh, I think absolutely a gay person can be a Christian. Um, But I think what they're really asking is, should a person who's inclined towards same-sex attraction be allowed to practice their relationships, uh, you know, cultivate relationships, or should they remain celibate? That's really, I think, what people are trying to ask. And, um, you know, there are two camps on that in Christianity. There's the the camp that uh, it's acceptable for people uh, to live out that lifestyle now because those issues they're facing weren't really um, approached the same way back in the era of the Old and New Testaments when they were written. Uh, and then you have people who say, well, scripture forbids it. And so, you know, we should not, uh, we should not allow it either. And in the same way, you know, if somebody is a pathological liar, if they become a Christian, we expect them to no longer continue uh, pathological lying, even though they're going to struggle with that for, you know, the rest of their life. And um, I think that uh, as Christians, what we've frequently done in our culture, especially in the Bible Belt, is we've said, oh, you're a homosexual? Well, you can't be a Christian. Oh, you're a homosexual? Well, there's no hope of salvation for you. And that's just not true. That's just not the case. That's not what scripture teaches, and that doesn't um, seem to mesh with what even, you know, Christ presents in the Gospels. You know, um, he spends lots of time going to eat with sinners and, and spending time with sinners, and all kinds, you know, of people that uh, as Christians today, you know, you might find them, uh, you know, sort of being judgmental of. Uh, but every time that Christ spends time with anybody, no matter who they are, no matter what they've done, he always calls them to a higher standard, right? And, um, as Christians, what we have to do is put ourselves under the authority of Christ. And uh, that's the whole idea, right, of being a Christian, is that you're under the authority of Christ, you follow Christ. And um, you don't want to do anything uh, that is outside of his moral will for your life. Uh, But that doesn't mean that anybody's perfect either, you know. And uh, I don't think it's appropriate or right for us to elevate certain sins above others. There are different consequences for different sins. So, if you murder someone, then you're going to go to jail for longer than if you shoplift a candy bar. And that's, that's how it should be. But um, at the same time, um, you know, we don't want to go to the extreme of saying, okay, as Christians, we just affirm all the LGBTQ plus stuff, period. But at the same time, we don't want the LGBTQ plus community to think Christians hate us, because that's not our job. We're supposed to be 
loving all people and caring about all people, not just um, the people who are like us or who agree with us about everything. So I'll uh, turn it over to you now for some, <laughs> some thoughts. I don't know. I think that's great. Uh, yeah, I, it's been something that over the years, um, as I've gotten older, and I think as churches have been more open and maybe just social media being more open um, to talking about same-sex attraction and just the entire LGBTQ plus community that I start to realize, oh, I'm, I'm closely, you know, connected to people who are in this community, um, which, you know, maybe at first they weren't comfortable talking about it. So there's kind of an, a weird, nice part of, you know, this has come out more. So the conversation is, is definitely moving away from this constant, you can't be part of us, you, we're excluding you. Um, I sat in on a PhD dissertation um, presentation a few years ago that specifically his PhD was on, um, you know, what do we do with the LGBTQ plus community inside a church? And um, wrestling with, we have to move away from this idea that they cannot be among us. Um, and at the same time, though, you know, I feel that scripture is, is clear in its interpretation that we cannot affirm um, that as biblical. And it's very hard because now it's not just me saying I don't affirm it, but I can think of names and people and faces of like these people I love and I, I don't care to hurt them. But like you said, um, you know, we still have to be faithful to what God has said. And I think our culture um, just is currently in this bad habit of just making really rash decisions. Um, you tweet something and then all of a sudden we've got you all figured out. Or, you know, you have a bumper sticker on your car I'm, and I go to the extremes of what I believe you think. And I think technically um, the idea of like wearing a patch for these teams, you know, okay, you can wear a patch for the team and still not affirm it. Um, mm -hmm. But I think our culture kind of demands a conversation to go along with it um, because the assumptions will always be there that if you have this or, you know, if you post about democratic values, well, then you must not be pro-life. You know, I had a friend recently right. say that was a conversation. She's like, I just mentioned a Democrat and now somebody thinks I'm not pro-life. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, even, you know, all the different extremes. My grandmother um, my grandparents lived in Asia for a while. And so they have a Buddha statue in their garden, plays the organ for a church, you know, like clearly not Buddhist. And it's funny because if somebody just saw that, they'd be like, oh, well, they, they must be Buddhist. And um, for her, it's just a reflection of her life um, in Asia. And I think it's just, again, I'll probably go back to the same concept of caution um, that we have to display where I, I want to you do whatever I can to prevent bullying and, you know, the mental distress that comes from, um, you know, the LGBTQ plus community being either harassed or discriminated against in, in different ways. Um, I value their lives and I value, um, you know, them as the image bearers of God and, and, uh, but it, it's a very difficult situation. And, um, you know, because like you said, I think we kind of fall in different camps. Um, 
you know, if you don't um, see scripture as affirming that it's very difficult to find that middle ground of being able to support the community, but still mm-hmm. saying, I don't think that this is something um, that God approves of. And, and, but like you said, we've had a bad rap for elevating certain um, sins and saying, well, this is the epitome of the worst sins. And, and I don't think that that does good for anybody because we know that just the simplest of sins or what we would deem simple and in quotes um, Mm -hmm. is enough to condemn us. So um, I'm very hopeful for like a future solution um, or that with Pride Month being at the forefront of culture right now. um, And I think the trajectory is that it will stay there as a very prominent um, thing that it will kind of force Christians to start talking about it and not saying like, oh, I don't want to deal with this. This is too complicated. Um, I know many of my friends and um, my friends my age, like the millennial, the millennials of us want to talk about really hard and difficult things. But some of the other um, people we know in the churches are like, no, we've already made our decision and we're not going to talk about it. And it's just having this kind of negative effect on how to reach this community at all. Um, I had a friend that was like, why are you using preferred pronouns for somebody who was transgender? And I was like, well, that's what they, that's what they've asked me to do. And, and a little bit of like the Paul, I become all things to all for all people, you know, just to reach them. I'm like, it, to me, it's just pronouns. Like, and it's not going to help me have a conversation with them if I begin by offending them and refusing. Um, So I, I think that this is like, the beginning of a difficult kind of wrestling with these topics, but really good. Like we need this as a church to wrestle with these really theological issues of how to love yet not affirm. And what does that look like in real life? Right. Well, I mean, I think, you know, in the same way, you know, if you've got, uh, you know, a family member who is an alcoholic, you can love that person. Uh, you're not going to take them out for a drink, but, you know, you can, you, you still have, you still treat them as a person, you know, um, with regard to LGBTQ plus issues, right? Less than 1% of the population is transgender and less than 4% of the population is um, same-sex attracted, right? Um, and uh, so it's, it's not a large percentage of the population, but it's enough that most everybody at least knows, uh, you know, a couple of people in the LGBTQ plus community. And, um, uh, you know, gender dysphoria is a real thing. And there are people that, you know, may be just claiming it to get attention or to compete. You know, I mean, I know, I know there are guys who have said, oh, I identify as a girl so I can compete in girl sports and dominate and, you know, get scholarships and whatever, you know, and that's, that's very problematic. Um, at the same time, um, there are people who genuinely have this uh, dysphoria who um, cannot in their mind reconcile their gender with their body. And um, I think as Christians, we, we have to be responsible or not responsible, respectful of that. And as Christians, we have to recognize that, you know, people have said two things for years. They've either said, uh, well, they say both things typically, but they'll say, God created you just as he wants you to be. And they usually say that in reference to doing something good. 
And then uh, they say, well, you were born into sin and things aren't as they should be. And they say both of these things simultaneously. And it's like, no, you've got to pick one. Either you're created as God intended you to be, or you're born into sin and things are not as they're supposed to be. And unfortunately, the one that's more biblical is the latter, right? We're born into sin and things are not always as they should be. And sometimes things not being as they should be involve psychological issues that uh, are there from birth that aren't present physically, but are there mentally. And um, we have to, we have to, as Christians, I think, really wrestle with that. And we have to be more open to having conversations about things that we would like to be black and white that are not as black and white as we want them to be. Um, my, uh, you know, my kids are in public school. And so they will have friends who say, hey, I like, you know, other girls or I, you know, I'm transgender or whatever. And, uh, you know, so then they'll come to me and they'll say, okay, what, you know, what do I do here? How do I think about this? You know, based on the fact that I'm, you know, I'm a believer and I have friends who are choosing things that seem to be not what we teach in our church. And so I'll say, well, look, you know, the fact of the matter is um, you were their friend before, you're their friend now, you're going to continue to be their friend. And you continue being their friend, regardless of their situations, because they're valuable people. And, you know, you, you just treat them the way you treat everyone else. And as Christians, we've really got to work on treating all people the same. And, um, you know, this last week, I've seen several um, memes and things on social media where you'll, you'll see like a rainbow and there'll be a statement under it, something to the effect of, the LGBTQ plus is trying to steal this from Christianity, but the original meaning of this was God's covenant not to flood the earth again or, you know, whatever else, right? And it's like, well, that, that doesn't really show love to that community. It's just sort of more of this us against you, us against you, us against you. Uh, Reinhold Niebuhr called that Christ against culture. And Christ against culture is this idea that Christians have to be adamantly opposed to and against everything the culture is doing. There's another view called Christ transforming culture, and it's the idea where the gospel is uh, what really allows us to uh, help people change for the good of everyone in their community. And the only way you can truly change is through the change that comes by accepting Christ and the Holy Spirit indwelling you. And that's never going to happen if there's no bridge being built to the gospel. And that's never going to happen if you're always just hammering people who don't even have the Holy Spirit um, about things that they, they don't agree with you on because they're not Christians. And so, you know, I think doing things like posting these kind of memes is, is unacceptable and inappropriate for Christians. And, you know, as far as baking cakes goes, I'm honestly not even opposed to baking cakes. Uh, I mean, if I work in a hardware store, and I, you know, sell hammers, um, you know, somebody may come in and buy a hammer and go murder somebody with it. Now, if I would have known that, I probably wouldn't have sold them the hammer. <laughs> but, um, you know, I can't control working in a hardware store what everybody's going to do with the hammer, right? And in the same way, if you're in a bakery or if you're a photographer or if you are an event planner or if you're a real estate agent or whatever, you know, um, you can't control the lives of the people that are your customers. Uh, all you do is be an example for Christ and how you treat others and what you, how you carry yourself and, and how you reflect the gospel in the things that you do.
And so I don't think you have to affirm things you disagree with to be kind and respectful to others who have different beliefs. And I think that's where as a church, we really need to grow. And we need to come to the point where we can say, there are people in our families, there are people in our community, there are people in our city, there are people in our state, in our country, who don't have the same values we do. And that doesn't make them any less valuable as people, and it doesn't make them our enemies. It simply means that as Christians, we need to live in such a way that draws them to the Lord, and we need to treat all of them as God's creation who are intrinsically valuable just for who they are, regardless of any decisions they make or any things that they do. And so I think that for today, my kind of big takeaway is, uh, you know, exercise caution when it comes to how we care for creation, exercise caution when it comes for how we deal with the value of life, and exercise caution with how we deal with people who have different worldviews and different values than we do. And in all things, show the love of Christ. And um, as Christians, we don't need to be uh, hammering everybody out there and smacking people over the head with the Bible and you know spewing out hellfire and brimstone to everyone uh, for them to become believers. We need to be showing them that we actually care about who they are as people. And I think once we open the door to show people that, look, I like you, I care about you, we're able to have deeper, more meaningful spiritual conversations. We're also able to have deeper, more meaningful friendships. We're able to have deeper, more meaningful conversations, relationships, and so on. Uh, when we are kind and we are loving towards other people, uh, it opens all kinds of doors for us to grow as individuals and grow with others. So uh, those, are, those are kind of my thoughts. Aaron, any other words from you today? No, I think that's great encouragement uh, for all of us and, and just gives us a place to really examine our own lives and, and really kind of look at these three issues, um, which I think, you know, sometimes we can pass off as like no big deal. Um, but, you know, like how are we interacting with the environment around us? You know, are we destructive towards, um, you know, the, you know, the creation um, and that Im involves creatures and created beings. And, you know, we have to make sure that we are not even subconsciously kind of being destructive towards people around us, animals around us, plant life around us. Um, and it's a, a lost art. I, or maybe we never had the art of doing it well. But I think it's in our face these days with our culture and definitely worth taking the time to reflect on it and, um, you know, and kind of prayerfully consider a better way forward. Yeah, very good. So we have to have more conversations like this in the future and more Christians have to be willing to have these kind of conversations and not simply say, oh, I don't like that. I'm not going to talk about it. Um, you have to open the door for conversation because conversation, even when it's difficult, is what helps you become a better thinker and a better lover of God and a better doer of the things that God calls you to do in life. So uh, thank you guys for joining us for our Faith and Culture Now podcast today. We'll see you next time.